Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 1014. First Peter 2, 1 through 12, please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, as we just sang, we ask that you would speak as we come to you that you would give us the food of your holy word, that you would take the truth of your word and plant it deep down within us, that you would shape and fashion us in your likeness, and that the light of Christ would be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. So Lord, we ask that you would speak, that you would fulfill in us all of your purposes for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This should be a familiar text for us, uh, even if you haven't been around since our very first service on October 1st, 2017. Uh, I preached on this passage that day at our first service, and we mention it quite a bit around here. It's where we get the name of our church from, Livingstone. Um, some people ask, why isn't it Living Stones? And I say, because that's us and Jesus is the Living Stone. We're not naming our church after us. We're naming it after Jesus. 
the Livingstone. Well, today is a special day, uh, and you probably have no idea why, except for Chris and James, because I already told these guys. And I think I told one other person, maybe I told Jesse, but it has been 200 weeks since our first service. That's pretty exciting. And the reason I figured that out is because I was like, oh, I'm preaching the same passage. So I asked Siri, hey, Siri, how many weeks has it been since October 1st, 2017? It's been 200 weeks. So today would be our 201st service, but it's actually our 200th service because of the 100-year snowstorm in April of 2018. We didn't have a service. So today is our 200th service. That's pretty cool. Um, I told James also this week that I'll have to preach this same passage every 200 Sundays. So mark your calendars, June 1st, 2025. It's coming at you. So, But no, in all seriousness, uh, I've titled this message, Who Are We and Why Are We Here? This is not an existential question about the human race. Not, to, you know, why are we on this planet? Why are we, why are we here and who are we? But more generally speaking about the church as a chosen race, as Peter calls us here in 1 Peter chapter 2, and specifically about Living Stone Church as a reformed and evangelical gospel preaching church here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin in 2021. Who are we and why are we here? One of the things we love to talk about around here is the relationship between identity and calling. In other words, that who are we question is our identity, right? Who, who are we and why are we here? What are we called to do? That's our calling. So identity and calling, keep those two things in mind. And for those visiting with us, uh, please don't zone out. Don't think like, oh, here's this like message that's just for, especially you, mother-in-law, do not zone out. Um, I heard you laugh. I thought you, I thought you were chuckling. Oh, I thought, you were, I thought you were chuckling when I said not to zone out for our guests, but just giving you a hard time. But if you are part of another church, this is not just for people here at Livingstone Church. This is for all of us. Uh, and if you are not currently part of a church, I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you of that and that you would get involved in a local church. All right, so where are we at this summer in our series here. Uh, We are in part four of the priest section, so we've been going through Jesus as our prophet, Jesus as our priest, we'll be looking at Jesus as our king the next four weeks. So four messages in each section. We've had two sections on the Old Testament, how it points forward to Christ, one on how Jesus fulfills those offices, and then our fourth section has been on how that applies to us as the church. So we're looking at specifically today, what does it mean that Jesus is our high priest? What does it mean for us as the people of God? And I originally titled this message, The Priesthood of Believers, uh, kind of you know generic what we're going to be looking at, uh, which is much of what Peter is, is actually talking about here in this passage. If you're not familiar with that term, the priesthood of believers or the priesthood of all believers, I'd like to give you a little definition of that term. And if you're interested in reading a little bit more, there is a great article, uh, just a a short essay by John Fesco, F-E-S-K-O. He's one of the professors at RTS, where a bunch of us have studied or are studying. 
It's just simply called the Priesthood of All Believers. Uh, it's posted on the Gospel Coalition website. So if you just type in TGC, the Priesthood of All Believers, it'll show right up. But he gives, in his essay, he gives a definition of the Priesthood of All Believers and then a summary. So I'm just going to read those. First, the definition of the priesthood of all believers. He says, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers states that all believers in Christ share in his priestly status. Therefore, there is no special class of people who mediate the knowledge, presence, and forgiveness of Christ to the rest of believers. And all believers have the right and authority to read, interpret, and apply the teachings of Scripture. That's kind of just a basic definition. And then he gives this summary statement, which is basically what he unpacks in the article. The summary, he says, in contrast to the beliefs of the medieval church, the Protestant doctrine of the priesthood of all believers holds that there is no longer a priestly class of people within God's people, but that all believers share in Christ's priestly status by virtue of their union with Christ. Although there was a select group of priests in the Old Testament who mediated the knowledge, presence, and forgiveness of God to the rest of Israel, Christ has come and fulfilled the priestly role through his life, death, and resurrection. Therefore, Christ was the final priestly mediator, we talked about this last week, the final priestly mediator between God and his people, and Christians share in that role through him. This means that Christians are not dependent upon the priests within the church to interpret scripture for them or affect God's blessing of forgiveness for them. All Christians are equally priests through Christ and stand upon the same ground before the cross. This does not mean that we should do away with pastoral or ministerial authorities. While those authorities are a part of the way that God blesses his church with instruction in sound doctrine, those with churchly authority need the rest of the body just as much. So we'll be getting into a little bit more of that and what that means. That's just kind of a little summary statement of what it, the priesthood of believers is, if you're unfamiliar with that term. But again, several of those issues that are raised there in that summary statement are addressed here in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12, and actually a passage that was very much a driving force at the time of the Reformation for this doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. I've also already recommended the booklet on our table there, What is the Priesthood of Believers, um, by Craig Troxell, so I'll be looking at that a little bit later too. But what we're going to do here, I'm just going to give us a little bit of background on 1 Peter, and then highlight a few key things from chapter 1. So if you've got your Bible open, you can, you can go there to chapter beginning of chapter 1. And then we're going to dive into chapter 2, 1 through 12, and then we're going to wrap it up by considering how some of the problems that Peter's letter is seeking to address in the first century church are also challenges that are faced by us today in the 21st century church. So we primarily want to answer the question, how are we to follow Jesus as our priest and to live out the priestly implications of our calling so that the world might come to know and to follow Jesus our prophet, priest, and king. So if you're looking for kind of a, a main idea or kind of where we're headed, that's what it is. We want to answer the question, how are we to follow Jesus as our priest and to live out the priestly implications of our calling so that the world might come to know and to follow Jesus, our prophet, 
priest and king. So let's dive into 1 Peter and try to answer this question. A little background here, Peter's audience, he's writing to those Christians who are suffering, uh, those whom he addresses as elect exiles, uh, it's Christians who had been scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he's writing to remind them who they are, their identity, by addressing what Jesus has done for them, and to remind them how they should then live, their calling. Now, although we are not first century believers scattered throughout the Roman provinces of Asia Minor, we are still the recipients of this letter. This letter is addressed to us as people, as part of the church of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to use we language as I walk through this instead of saying they language. I'm not going to be talking about just Peter's audience. We are included in that as believers in Christ who are also elect exiles in this world. So chapter one uh, is, is really helpful in leading in to chapter two because it's full of priestly language. In verse two, Peter says that we are those who have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. So there's language there of Jesus' work as our priest and us as the recipients of that work. In verses three and four of chapter one, we see that the father by his mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then notice the priestly and sacrificial imagery there in verse 4. He says that we are born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That word here for undefiled is the same, or same Greek word that is used in Hebrews 7.26 to speak of Jesus, our great high priest. The word there is is translated as unstained, but it's the same word here as undefiled. The author of Hebrews says, It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, or undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Again, we talked about this a lot last week regarding the finality of Jesus' sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus as he offered up himself. And Peter emphasizes both the holiness and the set-apartness of Jesus, and therefore how his followers are supposed to be holy and set apart, as he is, and the indestructibility of Jesus' sacrifice. So there's the set-apartness and the indestructibility of his sacrifice. Look at verses 18 and 19 there in chapter 1. Knowing, he says, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So gold and silver, things that will perish and will fade away, but Jesus' precious blood will not fade away, and it, will, and it secures our salvation. And then Peter carries this purification and indestructibility theme down into verses 22 and 23 as well. Look with me there. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, 
Again, we see it here. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So the once for all sacrifice of Jesus and his shed blood secures us and therefore we are called to live pure and set apart lives as we abide in God and in his word, which is, as he says at the very end of chapter one there, this word is the good news that was preached to us. So we have to get this first part straight. Who are we, meaning what has Jesus done for us, in order that we might get the second part right? Why are we here and what are we called to do? And we see that connection very closely here with the first word of chapter 2. This is why we have to read our Bibles carefully and in context, okay? can't just open up to chapter 2 and start reading without any context of chapter 1. So let's say you're doing a Bible reading plan, and maybe you've been slacking a little bit, right? Maybe it's been like a week since you've read your Bible reading plan, and you're on 1 Peter chapter 2, and you open it up, you have no idea what 1 Peter chapter 1 says because you've, it's been a while since you read it, and you read the word so. Well, so what, right? We can also translate, translate that word therefore. We always ask the question, right? What's the therefore, therefore? It's pointing us back to something. Peter is making an argument here. Because of what is true in chapter 1, he says, so, and then he gives us what we're to do there in verses 1 to 3. So, or therefore, live like the realities of chapter 1 are true. Since you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Chapter 1, verse 3, and not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This is the indicative, right? These are the things that are true. So or therefore, then, then we have the imperative. What are we to do? And interestingly here, put away is not the imperative. Uh, put away is a part of participle. So it's so as you're putting away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, like living infants, the imperative here is long. So what we are to do is to long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it we may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So because of all these realities and all these truths in chapter 1, live like it, right? Long for that pure spiritual milk. That is what we are called to do. So again, as we tie these identity and calling pieces together, we must say that our identity always has to inform our calling. We can't ever ask, what are we supposed to do before asking, who are we, right? Who are we and what has God done for us in Christ? That's what Peter so masterfully does here in verses 4 through 12. There are basically three pairings of the relationship between identity and calling. Verses 4 and 5, verses 9 and 10, and verses 11 and 12, and we're going to walk through those. Verses 6 through 8 contain some Old Testament quotes that support the first pairing. So again, as we attempt to answer the questions, who are we and why are we here? I want to help us to think through some examples of what this might look like in our lives, of who are we, right? And we all have different ways that we identify, that we think through these things. One example is in terms of earthly citizenship, right? If we think about 
voting or about political engagement, we have to start at the top, right? First and foremost, we are American citizens, okay? Then we, I think everyone here is our citizens of Wisconsin, or at least we're, we're residents here. Um, and then we live in Oshkosh, or we live in Janesville, or we live in other places around here, right? So we don't go to Canada to vote. We don't go to Illinois to vote. We don't drive up to Green Bay to vote because that's not where we find our earthly citizenship. We belong to a specific city, a specific state, and a specific nation. So in terms of our identity, that's how we, we think through those things, right? We can think about it in terms of religious affiliation. Maybe if you're filling out a survey or if you're just thinking about how do I make decisions as a Christian? What are the things that are, are of utmost importance? When you go through our membership class, we have that little target diagram, right, with the concentric circles of absolutes, convictions, opinions, and questions. It's kind of a way to think through this. Starting in that middle circle, we're Christians, right? We're Christians first. So we might think about the essentials, the, the things of the faith that we, we must believe to be Christians. Then we're Protestants next, right? The, the convictions that we hold about things as Protestants are, are very near and dear to us. Then maybe we're Reformed after that, right? So a lot of the convictions we have kind of come from our Reformed heritage. Maybe then after that, we're Presbyterian. So we might have things that as Presbyterians, we don't exactly agree with everything that some of our other brothers and sisters under the kind of bigger Reformed umbrella might believe, but that's okay. So we, we're kind of getting from really broad to really narrow, right? And then that final one might be we're, we're part of the PCA. We're members in the PCA. So as we make decisions, as we think through maybe theological issues going on in our world, like we have to be able to analyze those things. Like as a Christian, how do I respond to this? Maybe all the way down to as someone in the PCA, how do I respond to this issue? So we're always, whether you realize it or not, we're always thinking through these things. We're always kind of analyzing things and, and a lot of times working kind of from that greater to the less, not in terms of importance, but just in terms of maybe influence. Then we can think about it in terms of our status in our family, right? For me, just speaking chronologically in my life, right? I'm, I am first a son of my parents, right? I was, I was born into the world. I didn't have any siblings yet. So I was just, I was a, a child of my mom and dad. Then I, then I had a sister. So I'm a, I'm a son, I'm a brother. Then I met my amazing wife, and now I am a husband uh, to Lindsay, and I am a father to eight wonderful children. So as I think through my identity and how I relate to different people, all of those things play into how I make decisions. And you all have varying degrees of how those things play out in your life too. And that can feel a little bit overwhelming, right? It can feel overwhelming to feel like I'm wearing all these different hats, and maybe I have to like please all these different people, or I have to act differently, but that's all part of your identity as an individual. And the truth is that life is complex, right? Our lives are complex, and we live in a complex world. So how much more, then, do we need to be clear about who we are in Christ and how we are to live out our identity I want us to specifically see then what our privileges are before God because of Jesus' work as our priest and how we are to live in light of those privileges. So let's look at these three sections here in 1 Peter 2. 
first one, verses four and five here. Peter addresses one of the most precious privileges that we have as Christians in verse four. As you come to him, a couple of things I want us to see here. The you, which we can't see in our English, unfortunately, if we were Southern and we had a Southern translation, it'd be as y'all come to him, right? The you is plural. As you, plural, come to him. We come together, right? We come corporately to him. The living stone, Jesus, rejected and chosen. He's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he's chosen and precious. Our reality because of Jesus as elect exiles is the same. We are rejected by the world, but in the sight of God, we are chosen and precious. So we come to him and we are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Peter highlights here the ongoing nature of our growth in the Christian life. Again, this is not something that's done individually, but corporately. We come to Jesus, we are being built up by Jesus, and we offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus. All this language here is corporate, right? You're a spiritual house, you're a holy priesthood, you, you offer spiritual sacrifices, you do all of these things together. And we do it as a people who don't stumble over Jesus, but believe and stand upon the rock of our salvation. And that is the purpose of these three quotes here. Two of them are from Isaiah, and one of them is from Psalm 118 in verses 6 through 8. He's reminding them that they are a people. They are a people built on the foundation of Christ, and they stand upon him, and they don't stumble over him. The end of verse 8 mentions those who do stumble and who do disobey the word, it says, as they were destined to do, which is consistent with Peter's emphasis on the grace and the mercy and the sovereign choosing of God that he has already highlighted in his letter up to this point. He's reminding us that we've done nothing to earn our salvation. We are exiles. Exiles are those who are in desperate need of deliverance. Exiles can't save themselves. Some of you know my brother-in-law, Phil. Uh, he works for World Relief. They resettle refugees in, in the area. Nobody comes from some, you know, war-torn refugee, refugee camp to America and says, oh man, I, I worked so hard to get here. Like, I totally earned it. I did all these things, right, so I could come and, and live in America. No, here are people who were, were exiled. They were exiled, a lot of them from their own country. They're living in refugee camps. And it takes a ton of work. It takes a ton of mediation and work for people to get them here, to get them to a place where they're safe and where they can live lives and not have this war-torn craziness, right? If, if you go ask any of the refugees, none of them are like sticking out their chests and patting themselves on the back saying like, I'm so great to get here, right? Zero, like none of them are doing that. They're some of the most humble people you'll ever meet. That's a picture of our, our spiritual reality, right? We had to be rescued. We were exiles. We were living in refugee camps spiritually, right? We were cut off from God. We were cut off from a life of, with him. And Christ has, has brought us in and rescued us. So Peter really hammers this truth home in the second pairing then in verses 9 and 10. 
I think the identity and the calling connection in these verses is awesome. I love this. Some of my favorite verses. He highlights, again, who we are. Pay attention to the corporate emphasis here in verse 9. But you, again plural, are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And there is a great prophet, priest, and king emphasis in these verses. Chosen race, second thing, royal priesthood. Okay, the word that's used here for royal is the, has the root word for king. So we could say you are a kingly priesthood. So emphasizing Jesus as our king and Jesus as our priest. Again, the priesthood of, of all believers taken very much from this verse, verse uh, 9 here, a royal priesthood, and from verse 5, a holy priesthood. And the prophetic element then is seen in the second half of verse 9. That, or so that, in order that, you are all of these things, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love what Peter does here. This is something really interesting. The word he uses here for proclaim, this is not the normal word that we see in the New Testament for proclaim. This is the only time this word is used in the whole New Testament. And this word for proclaim here means to to make something known that was previously not known. It's like, here's this, right? Like we have the we have the elements under here and you're looking at this, you're going like, what's, what's under here? And I go and I lift this off and you're like, oh, that's what it is. That's the idea behind proclaim here. It's to take something that was previously unknown and to make it known, to declare it. What do you see what Peter is doing here? He's saying that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's saying you are the ones who were under this sheet, right? Like, you were, you were dead in your sins. You were in darkness spiritually. And what Christ has done is he has come and he's lifted that off. And now you're in the light. So what he has done for you, you are to go and do to other people. right? You're to proclaim the excellencies. You're to uncover. You're to lift that veil off. Not that we do it, right? But through the preaching of the gospel, that's what God does through us. As that veil is lifted off and others go from being in darkness to into light. Okay? Very clear connection here between this idea of of identity and calling, what we are to do. And it only gets better, okay? If you think that's cool, verse 10 is amazing. Verse 10 here is a very powerful picture of our identity as children of God. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, here's another reason we need to read our Bibles carefully. Now, obviously, if you have a, a Bible with a, the footnotes, um, and it tells what the what the, the cross references. You can't like read every single one of those, right? You can't go look every single one of those up every time you read your Bible. But if you see something like this, and you're like, "That's kind of sounds familiar," and then you look and it says, "Oh, Hosea chapter one and chapter two. You're like, "Oh, maybe I should go back and and read Hosea and see what it says." Well, what Peter does here is he he borrows from Hosea chapter one and chapter two. If you're Remember the story of Hosea? God called Hosea, his prophet, to marry a woman named Gomer, who was a prostitute. And it's very clearly told that this is a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord. They have three children. All three of the children have symbolic names. The second 
second child was named No Mercy, and the third child was named Not My People. But despite the sin and the rebellion of the people, the Lord promises a day, this is in chapter 2, he promises a day when he will restore his relationship with unfaithful Israel. The Lord says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Then the Lord says, regarding Hosea and Gomer's children, he says, I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So God is saying to the people of Israel, despite your unfaithfulness, despite your sin and rebellion, which are pictured in these children, right? These children of this unfaithful marriage, no mercy, not my people. God says, I will have mercy on you and I will call you my people. Now, obviously, that was something that was directly to the nation of Israel. So how can Peter come and take this and apply it to us today? Well, it's because this idea of us as the people of God carries through from the Old Testament into the New. There's not this like, oh, these are things that are only true for Israel, and these are things that are true for the church. This is an incredibly vivid picture here of the mercy that God has on fallen, undeserving sinners like us. And Peter is making it crystal clear that there has been a life-altering shift in identity. Just look at the words there in verse 10. Once, dot, 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 but now, right? Once, dot, 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 but now. So there's this, you used to be this, but now you're this, right? You used to be one who didn't receive mercy, but now I've showered my mercy on you. You used to not be a part of my people, but by my grace and mercy, now you are part of my people, Guys, this is like, this is just so crystal clear here, right? This is so clear of what the gospel is, of who we are in Christ, and of what God has done for us. And these things need to inform who we are. You need to be able to read this verse and not say like, oh, that's cute. Peter quotes from Hosea. No, this is talking about you. It's talking about me, right? We were dead in our sin, but God saved us by his mercy. And we are now a part of his people. I mean, Peter's just hammering this home over and over in this chapter. And we have to see it. We have to embrace this. And we have to say, yes, this is who we are because of God's mercy. Okay, the third pairing then, verses 11 and 12. This highlights how our lives are to be lived in this world so as to impact those around us. In verses 9 and 10, it was a verbal proclamation, right? We're to, we're to speak, we're to speak in word. Now in verses 11 and 12, it's a proclamation in deed. So the identity piece here, Peter emphasizes in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, again, he's, he's having identity language here, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So sojourners and exiles here, uh, similar words, emphasizing that we're aliens, we're strangers, uh, this is not our home, we are temporary residents, and this is our, our temporary home here on earth. And in light of that homeless and temporary residency, we are to live in a certain way. We are to abstain from the passions of the flesh, 
which do what? They wage war against our souls. And then we are to keep our conduct among uh, the Gentiles honorable. And then we see this key word again. So that. Here's what we're supposed to do, and here's why. So that. Again, another purpose statement. If at some point down the road they speak against you as evildoers. No. When. Right? So that. When they speak against you as evildoers, and they will, right? It's guaranteed. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they what? They will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter gives us here a proper inward emphasis. Inwardly, we're to protect our, and care for our own souls. And then two outward emphases. The souls of others should be turned to God by the way that we conduct ourselves, and God should be glorified, which should be our ultimate goal in everything that we do. I think the reminder here that we are in a spiritual war is very important. Peter mentions here the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our souls. We also wage war against the world. We wage war against the devil. And one of the temptations in this war is there's actually a twofold temptation. On one extreme, it's to isolate ourselves from the world, right? To say this world is against us, things are hard, we're going to go isolate ourselves. The other one is to say it's too hard, I'm going to go all the way the other way, and I'm just going to conform to the world. So this tension of being in the world but not of the world is something that we're always having, we're always feeling to some degree. And this, kind of coming back again to the, the priesthood of believers, this is tied very closely to this discussion of the priesthood of believers. Now, the way this played out negatively at the time of the Reformation is that the clergy would isolate themselves from the people and from the world, and they would go off and they would live in these monasteries, and they would get away from, from the world, they would get away from other Christians, and they would set up this false divide between the sacred and the secular. In the, the booklet, in the what, is the what is the Priesthood of Believers booklet, uh, Troxel argues that the early church fathers and the, the theologians in the Middle Ages, that they actually believed in the priesthood of all believers, basically what Peter is teaching here in 1 Peter 2. But then what ended up happening is that in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, leading up to the time of the Reformation, especially in the, the early 15, late 1400s, early 1500s, they began teaching that the priest was clothed with the same power as Christ and that the priest should be seen as a mediator between God and between Christian believers. So you couple the idea of the clergy being set apart from the world with them being the only ones to mediate between those ordinary people out there, right, and, and God, and you've got a big mess on your hands. Martin Luther, at the time of the Reformation, emphasized the priesthood of believers, especially from 1 Peter 2, and he pushed back on what became an over, overly hierarchical priesthood. Rome's error was, the, the Roman Catholic Church error, was that the priests were elevated to a position that they were never intended to be. They, were, they could not be the ones who were qualified to mediate between God and man because, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
So we can come, as we've been seeing, we can come boldly before the throne of grace as a holy priesthood. We can offer our spiritual sacrifices of praise to God, which he accepts because of Jesus, our great high priest. And as the body of Christ, we all participate in this offering of spiritual sacrifices as we gather together for corporate worship. Remembering this will guard us against the error on the opposite side of being overly hierarchical. So being overly hierarchical, relying on the priest is one error. The other error on the other extreme is being overly individualistic. Now, As we've said and continue to say around here, you don't need to only come to church to worship God. We should all worship God in our individual lives as we pray and we sing and we read God's word. But it can never be only something that we do on our own, right? We're not only called to just worship God as individuals. And I think the corporate language here in our passage, what Peter is is talking about, is so strong. It's just way too strong for us to think that we can do any of these things solely on our own. There's a great quote uh, from Henry Nouwen about living stones and how together we display the glory of God to the world around us. He's talking about a mosaic. He says a mosaic consists of thousands of little stones. Some are blue, some are green, some are yellow, some are gold. When we bring our faces close to the mosaic, we can admire the beauty of each individual stone. But as we step back from it, we can see that all these little stones reveal to us a beautiful picture telling a story none of these stones can tell by itself. That is what our life in community is about. Each of us is like a little stone, but together we reveal the face of God to the world. Nobody can say, I make God visible, but others who see us together can say, they make God visible. Community is where humility and glory touch. There's another closely related error that affects how we understand and practice the priesthood of believers. Dr. Fesco mentioned it in his summary statement, and Troxel explains it in the booklet. And that error is, on the one hand, to understate the priesthood of believers by overstating the ordained ministry. It's basically what the Roman Catholic Church did, right? Making the priesthood too important. But the opposite danger is overstating the priesthood of believers by understating the ordained ministry. And we saw this kind of come out of the time of the Reformation, right? You had groups that would say like, oh, we don't need any, we don't need any pastors anymore. We don't need any, any clergy, just like, it's just kind of free for all. So the danger on that side then is not respecting the office that God has instituted. Luther, again, very helpfully, he said, it is true that all Christians are priests, but they are not all pastors. And some of you are saying, hallelujah, right? (laughs) In other words, we can all do the work of offering spiritual sacrifices as we gather together for corporate worship, but it's not just a free-for-all, right? We don't just walk in here and be just like, just total chaos and craziness. There is structure and there is accountability and there is a God-ordained manner in which the church is led and shepherded. For that, God has appointed elders to lead God's people not only in our corporate worship here in a more kind of upfront priestly role, but throughout the week also as shepherds. And while we 
lead from up front, and then we shepherd. We, as elders, are also worshipers, and we are also sheep who need to follow our good shepherd and our great high priest. So there's no great divide between the clergy and the laity in terms of our need to come to Jesus. You don't need to come to me in order for God to hear your prayers. I don't have some special place of mediation. And we all, especially as Protestants, we have to emphasize that and we have to remember that. Okay, well, I want to shift gears here a little bit as we close and uh, just get personal for, for a little bit. And just kind of in light of all these things, I just want to say how thankful I am to all of you as a congregation uh, for this reality, like for the reality that, um, you know, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Like I'm not, I'm not elevated to this special place and I, I don't have to like do all the work, right, um, of the church. I'm thankful for, for all of the people who are involved. I'm thankful for all the people who serve and, and love each other and not feeling like, Again, like it's all dependent upon me. Like that's such a huge relief. And just to have received the love and care that, that I receive and that my family receives uh, from all of you, I think that is a great just explanation, a great picture of that these things are true, that this is how the church is supposed to operate. So I'm very grateful uh, to the Lord for that, for all of you, uh, for sustaining us these past 200 weeks and by his grace for the next 200 after that and, and 200 after that. And hopefully into the thousands one day. Um, but again, we all play a vital role in God's name being glorified and his name going out from here in Oshkosh and the world beyond. As we close and prepare for the Lord's Supper here, I want to end with uh, just a, a little paragraph here from the, the booklet, kind of wrapping things up as he kind of encapsulates the things that we've, we've been talking about. He says, unquestionably, both the priesthood of all believers and the ministry of ordained officers are vital to the church's health and calling. The church's goal is not to maintain a balance between the two, but rather to encourage and engender the privileges and gifts of all members. The church needs every gift, every grace, and every member in order to grow properly. The church of Christ is a body which is held together by every joint. The church is a family, which is strengthened when each part works properly. The church is a spiritual temple, which builds itself up in love as each member fulfills his or her responsibilities. For the church to develop into a healthy and resilient body that God wants her to be, each and every member of the church must be encouraged to discharge the stewardship of their gifts in faithfulness and in devotion to the overall ministry of the church. The prayers of the whole church, whether offered in secret, in families, or in public worship, are heard and blessed by God as he pours out his grace and spirit in response to the church's frailty and need. The service and good works of the whole church are necessary for the ministry and ingathering of the church. It belongs to all members of the church, not just her leaders, to encourage, correct, admonish, exhort, console, edify, and mutually confess sin to one another. In short, every member matters. Every member matters, right? We all matter to what's going on here. It's, it's not just the elders. It's not just people who are doing things up front. We all matter.
And we declare that now, as we come to our family meal, we declare that everyone is important. Uh, whether it's the kids who we're going to pray for, uh, whether it's those who are coming uh, to take communion, there are no divisions here. There are no unimportant people. Uh, we don't say, okay, uh, Jesse and Chris, you guys come up. I'm going to serve you first and show how important you guys are as elders, and then we'll let all these other people come. That's not how we do it. We don't prioritize. We don't have a list of like, uh, well, Logan and Becca, you guys set up communion today, so you get some extra bonus points. Why don't you come down first? And, you know, John and Alexander, you, you guys greeted twice this month, so, you know, come on down. You're, you're specially privileged. It's not, right? We're not, we're all equal, right, when we come to the table here. And this, the beauty and truth of this meal is seen in the truths of our passage. We see who we are, the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people for his own possession. We see that we're, we're sojourners and exiles. We see how we're called to live. So we have to remember who we are. Like, if you read this and you say, well, I don't, like, I don't, I'm not that. Like, I don't, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not a sojourner in exile in this world. I don't, that's not me. Then we would ask that you would refrain and, and not come and take the elements. But if you're someone who's a follower of Christ, if you say, like, yeah, these things are true of me. I, I trust in Christ and I want to be Someone who, having received mercy and having now been made part of the people of God, I want to be someone who proclaims that to the world, right? This meal is a declaration to the watching world of who we are and of what we believe. So that's what we're doing here, right? That's what this is all about. So I'm going to pray uh, for the kids who are not taking communion right now. I'll pray first, and then we'll invite everyone to come down after that uh, again. The elements are here. There are two cups stacked together. There is a wafer underneath, uh, a gluten-free wafer, and then wine or juice on the top. And you can take one stack, return to your seats, and we will all partake of the elements together. So let me pray for the kids, and then I'll invite us all to come down. Father, thank you so much for your mercy. We thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you for the little ones among us who are not yet coming to the table. God, we ask that you would do a great work in their hearts, uh, through their families, through, uh, through this church, and that they would be ministered to. God, that they would never know a day apart from Christ, that they would see uh, your goodness and grace, and that they would come to know you. So, Father, bless these children and, um, and be with them and shepherd them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.